Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm doing something a little unusual. I'm going to go over my approach to drafting Wilds of Eldraine uh, at the conclusion of the format. So, first as always, the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. And I guess what I've noticed is that with my podcast, I focus on how to draft a particular archetype. And I sometimes discuss, like, what kinds of things can happen in a draft to get you into that archetype. But it's still the case that, like, when you sit down to draft, you typically won't or likely shouldn't have an archetype that you're trying to draft in mind. That kind of comes up naturally over the course of the draft, generally pretty early. But it's not something that you want to take into the draft with you. Uh, You want to have, like, a variety of options that you're aware of, and then navigate them based on the cards that you see. And so some amount of meta discussion about how to approach, you know, the beginning of a draft and the form, a format overall could be useful. Um, and I don't really spend a lot of time talking about that kind of thing, again, just due to the nature of this podcast. So I figured... There, are, We're getting to the end of Eldraine. There are technically some archetypes that I haven't discussed. I don't feel like I have anything all that insightful to say about them. And as we're significantly into uh, Lost Caverns of Ixalan spoilers, I figured that going over some stats on some not especially interesting to me archetype probably wouldn't be the kind of thing there's like a big audience for. So I figured I'd try something a little different here. Also, because the archetypes in this format in particular are pretty blurry, um, I think that my overall approach to the format, rather than my approach to a specific archetype, kind of um, certainly informs how I draft a little bit more. So I guess the reason I don't tend to focus on this kind of thing is that I'm trying to provide information that... I think most drafters can reasonably apply to their drafting. And I don't necessarily expect everyone to be at a point where it makes sense for them to approach drafts specifically precisely the way that I do. And I also don't know that the way that I approach a draft is necessarily optimal. I guess I'm more confident that I can say things that are like very likely to be right for most players about most archetypes. Whereas, I don't know, I might be leading people astray when I talk about how I draft, but it's still the best I can do. I know that I draft the way that I do for reasons and uh, that I'm relatively successful with it. So that's what we're going to talk about is what I'm, do- what I'm doing with Wilds of Eldraine, which honestly is very similar to what I'm doing with drafting in general. For a little bit of added context, earlier this week, I had an article published about how I approach cubes after CubeCon that talked kind of about my general drafting philosophy, philosophy, which is to draft unexploitably or as close to that as possible, where the exploit isn't even necessarily intentional. I'm basically trying to draft to avoid common or potential pitfalls, and I want to maximize my optionality to minimize the number of decks that I have that are a disaster for some reason. 
So to that end, I like to prioritize fixing, removal, uh, versatility, and inevitability so that I guess the purpose of prioritizing inevitability is kind of to have like a unifying strategy that I can reliably carry with me from like draft draft format to format um, that gives me a kind of background for evaluating how powerful cards are in the context of the games that I'm trying to play and which cards I want and stuff like that. And I think that Wilds Veil Drain lends itself to that very well. I think that there is a lot of good efficient removal, there's good fixing, there's good card advantage. So all the tools uh, that you need to draft the way that I'm inclined to draft are there. So that's just what I've done pretty consistently through the format and been pretty happy with it. So I guess a way to kind of sum up what I'm doing here uh, is pretty well captured in my most drafted cards, which is something at 17 lands. Uh, obviously a site I recommend a lot just in general. Uh, 17 lands, if you use its tracker, uh, tracks your most drafted cards, and you can go and review that whenever you want. So uh, for me, I was able to look today and see that my most drafted cards in this set in order are Tied for first, Prophetic Prism, and Johann Stopgap, uh, Prism being the uh, cantrip artifact uh, that filters color, reprint several times, uh, and Johann Stopgap is the four mana bounce draw card with a uh, bargain. Followed by Evolving Wilds and Crystal Grotto. So Prophetic Prism, Evolving Wilds, and Crystal Grotto are three of my top four most drafted cards, and then Stopgap is because... It's a not very highly prioritized blue card, and I tend to draft blue, and I specifically draft blue in such a way as to position myself to take advantage of hatching plans, which incidentally is my most drafted uncommon, if I see it, and stopgap is a way that I can usually make my deck better able to support a hatching plans that I could get past, or that I already have and I'm trying to support on a relatively late pick that's going to be relatively good in my deck regardless. So we, we see from this that I have a very, very, very strong preference for uh, color fixing and also uh, a preference for blue, which is carried out in the rest of the cards that I prioritize. Uh, my next most drafted cards are also kind of perfect encapsulation of my default strategy. They are Torch the Tower, the one red uh, deal two damage if you Kill a creature, exile it, bargain, deal three, uh, and scry one. Into the Fey Court, the five mana draw three, make a fairy. And Aquatic Alchemist, the two mana, one three adventure uh, creature that has an adventure to put an instant or sorcery from your grave on top of your deck. And those three, specifically like those three cards together, is just exactly what I want to be doing. I want to have Torch early to stay alive, to cast Fey Court, and then Alchemist can get me either more removal or more card draw, can be an early blocker, uh, can apply some decent pressure, and really kind of ties all that together. So this, like, a lot of fixing, look for hatching plans, and have exactly those three commons is really the essence of what I'm doing a lot. Uh, my next most drafted uncommons also say a lot. Threadbind Click, the 3-3 Fairy with an adventure to kill a tapped creature. 
uh, Tenacious Tome Seeker, the 2-3 um, bargain to return an instant sorcery from your graveyard to your hand. Frolicking Familiar, the 2-2 Flying Prowess Otter with an adventure to do one dimensioning target. And Edgewall in the uh, land that you choose which color taps for uh, mana that color and you can sack it to get an adventure back. So more fixing and then a bunch of blue cards that are also removal and card advantage. I, in general, prioritize uh, the adventures that are removal spells extremely highly. I prioritize removal in general, card advantage in general, and those things are both of those. And I basically think that as long as I have cheap removal to make a game go longer, some adventures to give me some uh, functional card advantage, and then uh, a few big card draw spells, uh, I'm going to have inevitability and the uh, cheap removal is going to uh, get me through the early game to the point where I can realize that inevitability. So I think that the other cards in a uh, controlling shell or structure, the other the non-blue colors, I think are all pretty interchangeable. Like every color has removal, but no other color has into the Fae Court. Blue just offers a different kind of inevitability than the other colors offer, and plays so well with the cheap removal spells in this format that I find it most reliable to kind of plan for blue to be kind of the basis of the deck and then the rest draft around it. Obviously, all of this is speaking to the episode that I did at the beginning of the format about bargain blue. I have explored other things largely for the purpose of being able to discuss them on this podcast, but I've kind of always come back to these blue control decks as where I ideally like to be positioned. Something that I should talk about that I don't think I went into a lot of detail in my notes on is the role of green in the format and its relationship with blue. So this is going to be kind of improv based um, on some of the thoughts that I had after compiling my notes while drafting immediately before this podcast. I had a draft where uh, the most powerful card in the pack that I opened was Tough Cookie, which uh, put me into early green. And I realized that this format is really weird for me in that I think of blue as like a three or four color deck, I guess, while I think of green as like a two or three color deck, which is weird because green offers additional fixing and makes it easier to splash. And in general, across formats, I think that I expect to be more colors when I'm green than when I'm not. But green is just kind of up to something. And by that, I mean, has like the food synergies and the role synergies and just kind of good creatures and a reasonable curve and really wants to play a proactive uh, board presence heavy game that is very much not in line with what I'm trying to do with blue. Blue green as a combination in this format, I know doesn't perform very well. It's difficult to make it work. Both colors play well with other colors more than they play well with each other. Uh, green, I think, is the clunkiest color. Like, you want to play the most expensive cards in your green decks. 
and blues the nature of the card advantage that exists in blue really really wants your other cards to be hyper efficient which the green cards aren't really offering so to me in a lot of ways i want to be either blue or green i think i usually am one or the other i guess you can be like an aggressive deck in the other color combinations uh, but i typically find myself either blue or green and I think I tr generally expect to have more colors in my deck if I'm blue than if I'm green. So I realized that like prophetic prism appeals to me a lot more in my blue decks than my green decks. Green has more other ways to fix, and I generally value the five color fixing aspect of prophetic prism less highly in my green decks. So like my green decks prefer stuff like brave and evolving wilds, while my blue decks that are trying to splash more colors prefer uh, grottos and prisms. Yeah, it's interesting how a strong green card kind of pushes me off of my default blue path more than a strong card in any other color, because uh, I can splash most strong cards in other colors into my blue decks. The exception would be a strong and very aggressive card. Uh, that can make me draft an aggressive deck instead of uh, kind of defaulting to my comfort zone with blue. As I'm saying this stuff, I struggle with wondering what the point is um, as far as it relates to other people's um, ability to get actionable feedback from this. And I'm hoping that just like the way that I think about how these colors, these cards and strategies and stuff line up informs something about the kind of stuff that's worth looking at on a meta level, even if you're not seeing this set the same way or approaching it the same way. Getting back to the blue stuff that I like, I value treasure making very highly in this format. Like uh, there are a lot of comparable cards that give you different random tokens, I guess. Uh, there's, you know, like Sweet Tooth, which is somewhat comparable to the um, Red Cap Thief is somewhat comparable to Conceited Witch, um, they all are like three mana creatures that give you another object. And, uh, I like the ones that give me treasure more than the ones that give me other stuff because I value the treasure object more than I value the other objects because I'm trying to splash and treasures make that more reliable. I do respect other archetypes. Like I think that red, green, high power and tricks aggressive is a good deck. I think uh, like wide red is a good deck. I think that there are some high synergy Boros decks that come together pretty well. I draft those decks pretty rarely because my approach is always to uh, value removal and fixing more highly than I value aggressive cards. And then it's just hard for me to end up pivoting into an aggressive deck if my first three picks are removal spells in two different colors and a prophetic prism to be able to splash those cards like that's not going to help very much uh, with, you know, getting into an aggro deck. It can happen, but it's rare. And I think it usually happens as a result of, you know, something like an early Imidane's Recruiter that's a much stronger card in an aggressive deck than it is in a control deck, though I'm happy to play it in control decks also. And, uh, you know, if I saw a Recruiter into some, you know, good removals, card or control card instead of recruiter into some good aggressive card like ash then uh, i might you know just try to play it as a value card in a control deck more often than not
but that's that's very much just my own preferences and comfort zone and you know i would suspect that most drafters would and should be more invested in trying to draft an aggressive deck if they start with recruiter than i would so yeah in a lot of ways i think that i don't know that i'm saying a lot in terms of how this all comes together that's very different than my coverage of drafting bargain blue uh when i first talked about it i still draft the deck really really similarly but i guess this is just a call out like that deck and the way that i draft it it kind of holds a special place in this format for me in that it is kind of like a default that i can find myself in pretty often looking at my history it's very rare that i play two colors very common that i have three solid colors and or four or five different colors um in my deck as far as this being kind of a specific implementation of my general principles about uh, valuing cheap interaction and inevitability and fixing and flexibility in a draft and uh, not playing cards that have a very disastrous or even, you know, kind of bad fail state. Like I don't play Mocking Sprite, even though it's a really good card in Blue Spell decks because it's just so bad if it gets hit by uh, Rat Out or Flick a Coin. This is also why I usually don't play pacifism-style cards. As far as, you know, all of that ties into this and this ties into other sets, I think that this set is very, very friendly to my drafting style because of the abundance of fixing and the abundance of value-oriented rewards for being able to splash, uh, referring here to the uncommon and rare adventures that adventure for a different color than the base card. But those things structurally really reward the flex, like prioritizing flexibility, which is why I've continued to do it so highly. So yeah, that I think basically covers what I'm doing here, my default approach, as far as what that says about this format as a whole, you know, looking back conclusions wise, I mean, I guess I think that this is a format that lends itself to that. I think that more than other formats, the thing to remember if you go to like flashback drafts of this format or something is, oh yeah, this is a format where mana is a little softer, a little easier than it is in other formats. Splashing is really easy and really heavily rewarded you should generally look to position yourself to be able to do that, uh, especially with a flashback draft. If you have a pretty good understanding of like which cards are strong and other people have like forgotten or whatever, you're more likely, or like, you know, you get new people playing this out for the first time where you maybe remember more of like which the good cards are. Um, I feel like anytime you're in, that kind of space where there's like a heavy information disparity between you and the other drafters. It's really nice to be in a position where you have flexible mana so that like whatever card the other drafters haven't noticed or have undervalued, you can just take all the like exceptionally good cards that you're seeing. Whereas if you pigeonhole early, you're less able to take advantage of a softer table in that way. So I would say certainly you know, my 
approach to drafting this set in the future, if it's ever back for a flashback or something, would be, you know, do do what I've been doing, but do it with more confidence. Do it harder. Make sure you have the fixing. And, uh, you know, I, I would expect it to be easier to get the fixing as, you know, players who are less familiar might not know to value it, might be approaching it as a two-color format or something. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's going to conclude my uh, opening monologue here. So I'm going to turn it over to chat. As always, I want to thank the newest uh, patron. Uh, so thank you very much, Stu. Really appreciate the support. And if anyone else is interested in checking out or joining the Drafting Archetypes Patreon, check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Um, biggest lesson learned this set. It's a tough one for me to answer because the set, like I said, plays so well into what I want to be doing anyway. Like there's a lot here for the set to really highlight about how mana works and like the relative utility of like Evolving Wilds versus Grotto and which kind of decks want which one and why. But like I, I've been down that road so many times that I wouldn't say I learned a lot from it. I think maybe the thing for me to reflect on most with this set is just so I've noticed that there are some sets where I feel like I just want every reasonable removal spell I can find. And there are some sets where I feel like removal is really overrated and I'm interested in like creature synergies or something like that. This set is very, very far on the just give me those removal spells end of the spectrum for me. Certainly a large part of that has to do with the availability of card advantage and the ease of spending mana throughout the game, uh, meaning that cheap removal is just like really, really good because trading up on mana ever at all is huge in this format. But I guess there's probably some more to think about in terms of unpacking like exactly when, why, when and why removal is like differently valued and when to like change that evaluation within like different archetypes in the same format and how it ends up playing out differently across different formats recently trophied with 11 land gruel brave wilds is nuts <laughs> yeah i can certainly like they're definitely really like one of the decks that I've been most interested in that I really haven't played is like super low to the ground, like Toadstool Admirer and um, Bestial Bloodline, I think is the name of the plus two plus two enchantment and Ginger Brute and like maybe um, the Tormenting Voice that makes a wicked roll and uh, just like really, really leaning into like one drops that are reasonable to put enchantments on and enchantments and rolls and then uh, Brave the Wilds would be really, really good in that deck because you could bargain away the rolls for more hasty uh, creatures and stuff like that. So I, I'm like aware of a like rock bottom curve gruel deck that I, you know, have never had come together because it just involves a real commitment to valuing cards totally differently from how I would normally value them. Isn't it counterintuitive to think removal is great in this set when there are a ton of natural two-for-one cards? Like I said, I think that it comes down to mana. I think that 
Um, it's really about removal's ability to trade up on mana and like trading up by one or two mana, I think is just a lot more valuable in this format than it is in some other formats because it's so easy for like both players to spend like pretty close to all of their mana throughout the course of the game. And so a lot of the like who's ahead on the battlefield is going to come down to just like who is able to get more uh, mana efficient exchanges. And so the, like the cheap removal just goes a really long way to doing that. What strategy took me the longest to evaluate and why do I think it was hard to evaluate? <laughs> Attacking, because I don't really do it. Um, like, I, I'm kind of serious about that. Like, this Gruel deck I've known about for a long time. Like, the just, like, low curve one drops and, like, uh, rolls as, like, a thing that you can do. Um, I've, like been aware of but and like there was even a while where i tried to like put myself in a place to draft it and ended up usually like being in the like go wide red deck instead because it just like didn't really come together in a way that was apparent to me and so like conceptually i like what these decks are doing right like i was just talking about how valuable it is to make any man mana positive exchanges and so like if all your cards cost one and two mana you might like meaningfully be able to like get under the opponent, and like these decks uh, potentially play really well with like season of growth and lookout. Like I, I talked about the um, you know green enchantress style decks, but like there's a way to draft them with like a much lower curve than what I had done that sounds pretty good, but I guess it's like hard to evaluate because it's requires drafting in such a different way from the beginning of the draft that it's really hard for me to know like okay well i need to know not only when this works does is the deck that it produces good which is not trivial for me to figure out but also if the way that you draft is to position yourself to have this deck does that does it come together enough does the overall strategy like play out from there in such a way that you typically end up with good decks like what's what are the pivots here what does the fail state look like and that's the kind of thing that like requires such a fundamental paradigm shift that it's really really hard to know while being one person uh unless you just you know commit to okay i'm gonna like draft this way and see what happens um and, you know, pursuing that just involves, okay, well, I'm going to discover this instead of pursuing something else, which, you know, is a valid pursuit, but uh, certainly not something that I committed to in a proper way to really discover it. So I'd say the thing that took me the longest to evaluate is the thing that I still haven't properly evaluated. Why do you think the threatens in this format kept a very high win rate despite traditionally not being good across previous formats? So... In general, when threatens are best is in formats where it's easiest to sacrifice the things that you take. In this format, that's not necessarily what was going on. The threatens here, I think, are good mostly because they have like they're more damaging than usual. Like tempting apple getting three extra damage makes it just like so much more lethal and um the other one 
<laughs> the one that uh, makes a role also like, you know, you can do it pretty early and pretty proactively uh, to like get a role on a thing that's not the thing that you took. That's going to push one extra damage up front. Probably twisted fealty. Probably another damage with the role connecting later, and then another damage uh, when the role goes to the graveyard. So you kind of get your about three extra damage out of that one, uh, the same way that you get the three extra damage out of the apple. Uh, that's only true if you're using it for like winning over a couple of turns. But you're still getting like some more damage than just to threaten. Also, the creatures in green in particular are really big. Rolls in general um, make it slightly more likely that there's a creature that's like a little bigger than normal. The aggressive decks just being like pretty good. And uh, yeah, Callous Cell Sword is certainly, you know, a factor. Like there, there are ways to do uh, Steel plus Sack, but there are also just like pretty good ways to just kill people out of nowhere. And I think the Threatens, like it's just a format that's relatively th friendly to Threatens killing people uh like the aggressive decks are pretty good at getting a lot of damage in early and um a lot of the stabilizing that's happening is happening with big and or trampling creatures why would having adventure affect things because so think about it in the context of like uh gingerbread hunter where it's a five drop but it has a three mana spell attached to it so you can have this extra five drop in your deck that you can play like as a three drop in terms of like making sure that you have cards that impact the board. And so it kind of forgives having like an unusually large number of expensive creatures at the top of your curve because of the ability to like spend smaller increments of mana on something meaningful before ultimately casting the big thing. Uh, so it makes threatens better because people are playing more big creatures. Right, exactly. Also, like the Upfront inefficiency of adventure cards is part of what makes it easier for aggressive decks to get damage in early, which is part of how people are more likely to be in range of a threat and finishing someone off. Do you think this could suggest in the future that we should think about threat and effects as good, even if there's no easy sacrifice outlets? Again, it's going to depend on how well the, like, how often the aggro decks, like, get people into a spot where a threaten would kill them, what the big creatures are like, whether your threaten is going to get blown out by like a protection spell or flicker effect or something like that. Some formats just don't involve as many big creatures as this one. I would certainly say that I think the presence of sack outlets with threatens in some formats leading to an archetype that revolves around that has slightly led to people over-indexing the extent to which that's the only thing Threatens can do. But, uh, you know, it, that doesn't necessarily mean Threatens are generically going to be good in any format, regardless of, like, context, or that, like, if you've only been playing them that way, you're categorically underrating them in general. Just, they are impactful cards and they can have a have a place even when you don't have sacrifice synergies is there an archetype that never really came together i mean 
Yeah, like there are underperforming archetypes in this set, right? Like blue white underperformed, blue green underperformed. I think several of the archetypes like themes didn't really come together in a way that made any sense. Like I think uh fairies tap enchantments go to the graveyard uh in white black like none of those themes were really properly supported. I think that like as far as this set's execution of its design goals with regard to archetypes doing things that they were potentially designed to do, I would give this set a very low grade. Um, I think a lot of the archetypes were kind of traps um, or just like undersupported. So I, I would say a lot of it didn't really come together, which I imagine might be uh, an issue that some people have with this format. For me, I liked the other stuff that was going on. I liked the blurring of colors and the ease of pivoting and playing more colors. Um, and I thought the gameplay was pretty good. I like games where players have uh, more things to do with their mana than they have mana available. Um, so that they have a lot of decisions to make. And I felt like adventures lend themselves really well to that. But as far as misses in this set, in terms of like archetypes, yeah, there are a lot of them. This is the first set I've drafted. Are there any basic principles for deck construction that helped you when you started? <laughs> the basic principles for deck construction when I started just don't apply to modern cards. Uh, I've, I've been playing for too long for that question to be the question you really want to ask. Uh, but, I mean, basic principles in terms of, like, uh, mana counts and curves and number of colored sources and stuff like that, 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 that those are the kind of things that, like, you know, there, there are very standard established pieces of advice available. They even put them in, like, booster boxes uh, these days. Um, I'd say, you know, it's important as far as, like, basic principles to know all that stuff. What's the most common win con in your blue control decks? I often find myself struggling at turning the corner quickly enough to not expose myself to some to some top decks. Genuinely into the fake court. Um, into the fake court, like I will often draw three cards multiple times, and then I'll be in a spot where I have like five cards in my hand and three removal spells to my opponent's nothing. And I'm not exposed to top decks because I can answer everything multiple times over until I like kill them with my aquatic alchemist and one one flyer or whatever. Sometimes, you know, uh, like an archive dragon or grabby giant or Baluna's gatekeeper or whatever ends up playing a role there. But like the card that's actually turning the corner and making sure that I'm not like losing to my opponent drawing better than me is genuinely into the fake court. How much did I enjoy the rolls mechanic? Um, I liked it. I think that there was a good mix of like instant and sorcery rolls, and it like slightly increased the amount of like combat tricks. And even the sorcery speed rolls are kind of like more haste. Like they change the context of blocking after you've passed your turn as the defending player. And, you know, stuff that's, like, regularly uh, modifying things by 1-1 one, one just kind of, like, makes little differences in numbers matter more. The trinket text on the different roles, 
probably overall a little interesting, might not be worth the complexity. Uh, also, like, it's a lot of, you know, opportunities for, like, small blowouts in terms of, like, killing things in response to roles and stuff like that that make timing of interaction a little bit more interesting. So overall, I think, like, the gameplay there is pretty good. And I think I'm going to wrap it up there. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, special thanks, as always, to anyone asking any questions in chat. Obviously, it seems like I have decided that this is the last episode about Wilds Veldrain. I hope that that leads itself naturally into talking about Lost Caverns Vixlon next week. I haven't looked exactly at like the preview and release schedule and thought about days and times and stuff yet. But uh, I imagine I will be able to say something about the set next week. So uh, let's assume that's going to happen. Um, so look forward to talking to everyone next week about Lost Caverns Vixalon, seeing rumors that the whole set should be available. So yeah, this, this should time out uh, just right. So have a good week. And I look forward to getting into that next week. Uh, bye for now. Prepare for light speed. Thank you.